0: Welcome back to another week of Schizophrenic Reads the Podcast. I'm the host, Nathan Shurek. This is a podcast all about nonfiction. This week, I am so excited to bring you Jamie Loftus, the author of Raw Dog, The Naked Truth About Hot Dogs. Jamie, welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: Jamie, you've done a ton of stuff over the years, including you have some very successful and very fun and cool podcasts, including The Bechdel Cast, My Year in Mensa, Lolita Podcast, and Ghost Church. And now you're now you're getting into the author game. Like, what has that transition been like for you?
1: It's been a lot. I guess <laughs> yeah. it's been a lot. I cannot lie. Uh, but no, it, it's been mostly really, really lovely. Um, I think that I mean I always wanted to write a book. It was like my dream when I was little, but I didn't. I guess I didn't clearly see a path from doing the kind of podcast work that I was doing to writing a book and when uh my editor sort of approached me and was like you're basically writing a book every time you write (laughs) these 10 hour podcasts it truly I was like oh yeah it's 10 like those are
0: audiobooks like those are those are just full audiobooks
1: (laughs) totally and I just like I had never I don't know whatever like dissonance there was in my head but it like and then it came together I was like oh Okay, yeah, I'll try it. Because in my head, I just was like, Oh, I, I can't write a book. And then it turned out that I had already. But also I hadn't. And there were like all of these other, you know, challenges of, uh, you know, when I'm writing the podcasts, I know that I can like lean on my voice, I can lean on editing to say things that I can't in a book. And so there was some growth that had to happen there as well. I mean, it was cool. It was like a combination of I knew more than I thought I did, and I also knew uh, not enough when I started. <laughs> so it was like a, it was a, it was a cool
0: process. How was narrating the audiobook different than doing, you know, like all the podcasts you've done? You've done so much voice narration, but how was was there really any difference between the audiobook and the podcast that you've done?
1: Um, not very much. I think that when I was doing the audiobook, it. It, again, that like difference between uh, when I'm writing for when I'm scripting for podcasts and like I can rely on my voice to tell you like this is a joke, <laughs> uh, but you have to add words if they if someone can't hear you. And so there were like a few moments where I felt like I was overdoing it because I was like saying a joke with my voice. It also, I don't know, it's like ending every stand up joke by being like, and I wasn't serious about that. <laughs> and please don't be upset with me. Um, so that was different. But outside of that, I mean, I had a great time I recording the audiobook. It felt, yeah, I felt lucky because that was like the most at home I felt the entire process. Like it was just fun
0: well, i I picked your book for my book club pick uh, for August. and I had almost every single person that read it either did it like in tandem with the book and the audio book or just did the audio book. And so many people really enjoyed it. I did it, but I did it both ways. I like to do that when I'm talking to authors just because I, you know, there's just a little bit tonal difference between an audiobook and like a physical book. So totally. it was really exciting. I had wanted to start this podcast off by like a really hard hitting journalism question. But then <laughs> okay. I looked at your Instagram from yesterday and it spoiled everything. I was going to ask you, when's the last hot dog you had? Because oh. I mean, I figured maybe there'd be some hot dog burnout. It didn't seem like it, you know, based on like how you concluded the book. It wasn't like, wow, I hate hot dogs now or anything like that. But I was like, oh, I wonder like really when the last time was. And then yesterday was Labor Day and you posted a couple pictures of eating a hot dog. So that that kind of spoiled that.
1: Yeah, I had a hot dog at the Renaissance Fair yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it hasn't. I was really pleasantly. I, I did go back and forth where I was like, is it necessary? And then all of my friends had already gotten the Renaissance Fair hot dog because it's you know, famously a medieval food (laughs) and I got it and it was good. And yeah, no, I, I have not quit. I, if there's one thing I'm really bad at, it is like fully closing a door to people, things, experiences that arguably I should, (laughs) uh, and hot dogs is, is pretty high up on that list. I I'm still, I'm still at it.
0: When coming up with the idea for this book, I like in my mind, and I know you do like so many different projects and stuff, but like, was, did this idea for the books like start as like a bit that you were just like joking around with your friends or like from the start were you like, I could do a hot dog book. Like, (laughs) I'm curious, like how serious it was from the start for you.
1: It was pretty serious. (laughs) I, yeah, I started, um, honing in on hot dogs as a topic it it had come up in my work a bunch because I just liked hot dogs a lot so (laughs) they'd come up every so often I did like this one-off show I truly only did it one time because it was like right before lockdown started so every like I'll do one person shows and workshop them over a course of months and then I did this once and then was like well we'll never know we'll (laughs) never know what was gonna happen But central to that show was like the idea of it was around the experience of getting fired for tweeting fuck hot dogs uh, when I worked at a hot dog cart. And so it had been on my mind. And then it sort of I don't know, I, I feel like I have like themes and just like things like I guess a hot dog that is just like floating in my head and then it's just like waiting for the right medium to talk about it in. Because, you know, I couldn't uh, work on that as a comedy show. But then um, during lockdown, I started making those podcasts and sort of got the opportunity to, you know, actually have some runway to, to make deep dives on things that um, I was interested in. And so when I started making those shows... For iHeartRadio, they sort of were like, okay, well, pitch us a couple of ideas of, you know, things that we would give you six to eight months to make a show about. And um, Hot Dogs was second on the list. There was like, but like Lolita was there and like Kathy Comics and all these things that I actually did execute. And Hot Dogs were just always a no, there is not a lot of interest. In
0: it. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I'll turn this into a book then. Yeah. that's it, like, yeah. I'll, I'll pitch it to someone else. This is well, great. Do you, like when I got
1: the opportunity to pitch a book, I was like, well, this is something that they're not interested in that I would like to do. And, um, fortunately there's not a lot of books about hot dogs. So they're like, hmm. all right, let's see what happens.
0: What was the, what was the pitching process? Uh, like, I'm sure, I'm, I'm going to guess you went through an agent and, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's such a niche topic and I mean, obviously handled so creatively and passionately, but oh, those, you know, some of those passion projects can be hard to get contracts for and stuff like that. So what was kind of yeah. just the, the getting the book contract like for you?
1: It was a long process because I, um, I had met with my editor, Allie Fisher, I'd met her in person once again, a few months before lockdown when I had just released my first solo podcast uh, called My Year in Mensa, which was like a whole experiential, like I got into Mensa and then got bullied by a right wing faction of Mensa for a year. And I made (laughs) I made a podcast about it and um, she'd heard it and liked it and was like, have you thought about writing a book? And I was like, no, I haven't. And she's like, okay, well, um, you know, it's whatever, January 2020, it's going to be the best year ever. So just uh, if you ever want to pitch a book, just let us know. And I kind of, I I just like didn't, I don't know, I felt it was lucky that I even got that meeting and I just kind of let it fall by the wayside in my head because I was like, well, I don't know what I would write a book about. And the last thing I would ever want to do is... Write a book just to do it. And, you know, I mean, there's a million, and I say this with love, but there's a million collections of essays of like, you know, white women in their late 20s, early 30s talking about how the internet is
0: not the coolest place or something.
1: (laughs) Right. Which is a valid point, but not like in terms of talking about like, you know, I didn't want to do like a collection of essays about my life. I'm like, I have not lived. quite enough, or interestingly enough, to to warrant that. Um, and so I sort of was like, well, that was very flattering, but I I don't really know what I would bring to it. And I lucked out in publishing after being in podcasting for five years before there was like a, a real, you know, I guess like success that felt significant enough to give me those opportunities. And so, um, yeah, I, I feel like I In terms of publishing, I kind of skated by pretty easily and got a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have if I hadn't already been in podcasting.
0: Do you think doing the podcast, especially like the formatted that you've done, like the longer narrative podcasts, do you think that really helped kind of just the writing process? Because I have to imagine, you know, writing scripts. I know a a while back uh, you were doing Robot Chicken, but those are... Those are quite <laughs> short hitting skits and stuff um, from my memories of watching it. You know, I say, you know,
1: they're very uh, short.
0: <laughs> younger guy, but um, did that just give you just, I don't know, maybe just a little bit of a confidence boost or just a little bit better mental approach going into writing something, you know, 200 plus pages or so?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. Yeah. Cause everything is kind of like sectioned off differently in, my head where I've I've written an animated comedy for years and I really love it but yeah I, I mean outside of just like joke writing it's not quite the same area of my brain working. I don't think but that could also be <laughs> wrong but it it I enjoyed because when I was working on the book I was also working on an animated show. It felt nice because it was like, oh, this is like in my day it would be like okay, hot dogs was weirdly the serious part of the day because that was like nonfiction. And then when I was in the writer's room, it was like collaborative and it was goofy and it was like pitching gross jokes and it was a blast. (laughs) I really enjoyed that. Um, Yeah, it was like a fun split. So I mean, writing in TV, I don't know. Yeah, it, it feels so separate to me. But the podcasting, again, just like it felt like directly overlapped to the point where I was worried about it feeling too overlapped because the last thing you want to do is publish a podcast script (laughs) as a book. Yeah. But it's also because I don't know, like as much as I slightly resent it, it's like, that's what I'm mostly associated with. And so there's always going to be like, I don't know, emails that are like, wow, I liked your book. It was like a long podcast. (laughs) Like, I guess that's technically how you could describe a book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, some books. I mean, some books work work pretty well and, you know, the episodic natures of of how people write chapters and stuff. Um, No, I think yours yours had such a distinct voice. And I wanted to kind of get into that just a little bit because uh, one of the things during reading it, and I read a lot of nonfiction, and something I don't come up across that often, aside from just like, horrific things is kind of like the gross side of things, or even like in the nonfiction world, like the more sexual or sexy type of writing, because it just seems to kind of fall to the wayside in a lot of people's, I don't know, approach to telling their own story or telling other people's stories. Uh, But you were, you were fine talking about so many different things, so many bodily functions. And it was really like, I, I think in, in my mind it was a great departure from a lot of the other stuff that gets sent to me and, and that i spend my time with so um was there any kind of like moment where like an editor or anyone was like hey are we are we really going to talk about shit for the the like the fifth time by chapter 2 or something or like was it just like let's just keep going this is good <laughs> like we're having fun
1: yeah i honest i mean it's thank you for <laughs> noticing how disgusting the book is. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel it's so funny. Cause like, I think because I've just been in comedy for like almost 10 years, like since I was in college, it, it always like, I, I think I always assume when I'm doing nonfiction or if I'm reporting that it's like so deafeningly serious that mm-hmm. I will have like lost myself entirely. <laughs> Uh, And then I will get feedback from my editor who's like, no, you talked about shit five times. Like, it's still pretty (laughs) clear that it that, you know, it's not completely serious. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I I think that that is like, you know, for better and for worse, because I know it's not for everybody. Uh, And, you know, regardless of uh, its effect on my mental health, I do check Goodreads. You know, I know it's not for everybody, but it is kind of I think it's just sort of my comfort zone where like I those are areas of my life that I have no issue discussing (laughs) whatsoever and like never have. But then also, I mean, just like reading more nonfiction, not while I was writing it because I was afraid that I was going to start accidentally emulating somebody else. But when I was going through future drafts and I felt like, okay, you know, the shape of the book has basically been found. I don't feel like I'm going to accidentally become another person by mistake it was, I mean, I think that there's like other elements that nonfiction writers feel comfortable disclosing about themselves that I would avoid. And so it was like I had a interesting and like good experience and fortunately completely supported by my editor. Um, I think there were, there were very few times I was told uh, this is too gross or... <laughs> Usually and I I mean I trust I trusted her and she you know, it's like she was a comedy fan, she had done comedy herself and also was like a really shrewd editor. So I was like, okay, if Allie thinks it's too disgusting, she's got a pretty strong stomach. I'm gonna I'm gonna take her word for it. We'll sort of move forward accordingly. But it was cool because I felt like I was more of an outsider to that space than I was expecting to be. And also I just like enjoyed getting to know. The world of nonfiction were because I I had read a lot of it, but I hadn't really ever seriously considered, well, how much of this writer is present in the book, and how much feels necessary, mm-hmm. and how much feels egregious. Because I feel like that's a sliding scale that mileage varies on too. Yeah, I don't know. It was it was a really interesting learning curve.
0: I'm just kind of curious. Where do you think, or are, are kind of what genre? would you like define your book as that? That's been like one of the hardest things that I've like thought about your book in like the the couple weeks since I finished it is like, it doesn't super fit like neatly in a good way, I think. But like, it's, it's not just a standard memoir. It's also not strictly a history. It's also not just a comedy. Like there's, you know, a lot of books fit pretty neatly into just one of the sub genres. And like, I'm curious when you look back on, How you wrote it and how you approach the topic, like if if you would even want to put a singular label on your book, or or kind of what you think of the subgenre, like for the categorization for your book.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's. I don't really know. I yeah. I feel like anytime I see it anywhere, I'm like, I don't really care where it, what area of the store it's in. (laughs) Yeah. Really thrilled that it exists here. I don't know. I mean, I think when I pitched it, I was thinking of it as a travel book, not because of, like, it is my greatest dream to write a travel book, but because just pragmatically, my literary agent was like, it's summer 2021. That's a pretty bare section these days. So pitch it (laughs) as a travel book. (laughs) And so that was how I was going into it, thinking about it. But I don't know, it changed so many times. I... I never really thought of it as memoir because, I mean, I love reading memoir and I I also feel like if I really wanted it to be a memoir, I should have uh, said more, but I was always trying to, you know... (laughs) Say less about myself when possible, because there's like people who I'd like understandably pick up this book expecting it to be one thousand percent about hot dogs and zero percent about like my bowel movements and people who have <laughs> like hurt my feelings. So uh, I didn't want to, you know, overwhelm with like too much of that. I don't know. i and i I think like as I've done interviews about it and thought about it over the last couple of months already, I'm like, oh, if I could do another draft of it, I would want you know, the ratio of everything to be different. And I'm sure that'll keep changing. But yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I don't have a strong preference. There's definitely areas where I feel insecure where I see it, where I'm like, oh, if someone loves food writing, they're going <laughs> to hate me. Uh,
0: no, I, but, I, I think it's food writing and a lot of, you know, basically every genre can have this, you know, by definition. But food writing can be so dry and so boring sometimes. And some of the, some of the travel food writing is so kind of high culture stuff, you know, like let's, Let's do a food tour of the, the Michelin star restaurants in Iceland. And you're like, ah, well, mm-hmm. this isn't relatable. I don't know. I don't right. know what we're getting into. But uh hot dogs. Yeah, no, I know I know what I know what picking up a hot dog is like. And I know what picking up a hot dog multiple days in a row is like. So <laughs> that's Yeah. I mean, to me, that's like an exciting part. I think there's also been like a flourish of low culture books in the like the last few years of of people like tackling. I think the parts of culture that are just, I don't know, so normal, but that we kind of just don't think about too often. And I think Raw Dog is just fits in greatly with so many of those. Were there any like other like low culture books or media that had really like kind of inspired like what you did with Raw Dog?
1: I think like one of the, I I was coming off of a podcast project that I, felt insecure about in a different way where I felt like I was out of my lane where I it was about Lolita and it was like uh, I, I you know I, I it was something that was very important to me and I felt like I was able to take on the topic but it felt like you know you're like launching yourself into this like zone of literary critics where again it just felt like they're gonna fucking hate me <laughs> and like it turned out fine but it felt you know like I don't mind putting myself in a place that feels like intentionally out of place. But when when I was getting ready to do Raw Dog, I think think, uh, How To with John Wilson had started pretty recently. And that was a show that I really appreciated and thought about a lot just in terms of like taking the smallest interactions and taking it seriously and... Just paying close attention and and finding, you know, sometimes the story is in your surroundings. And it's like, I am only so qualified to describe the notes of meat flavor. Like, I don't <laughs> fully know what I'm tasting, <laughs> but I can, you know, but I will pay very close attention to everyone in a gas station and like what's going on. and And that to me is like more of what's important. So I was looking for yeah, stuff like how to was really helpful. And then there were also, I mean, it was podcasts like you're wrong about where it was like these, you know, what a more careful look at stories that were considered trashy or lowbrow or just, uh, people that, uh, you're socially conditioned to not take seriously and then treating it and treating them like, it's the most serious thing in the entire world. And I love that. And I, I've felt at different points, very like what are alternatively like seen and also just interested in looking at stories like that. And so something so like innocuous as like a hot dog, (laughs) you're like, well, this is something that we encounter all the time. Everyone feels strongly about them. And I really love them and so like I just I'll, I will stare at them for a year and see what they have to tell me and so anything yeah I think it's especially coming from a comedy background sometimes you see a lot and I have you know especially like earlier in when I was starting out like the easiest thing in the world to do is look at something and be like fuck you um, which is also very easy to do to hot dogs. There's plenty of disparaging ways to look at them. But I was like, no, I'm going to treat the hot dog um, with as much grace as it will allow. And uh, yeah, I'm glad. I, and I liked looking at people who were trying to do the same thing.
0: You talked a little bit about You're Wrong About the podcast with Sarah Marshall. And I know you've done a few episodes on it, but I wanted to say... Reading the kind of the finale to your book about the Wienermobile, it genuinely felt like a like kind of the approach that you're wrong about would take to the topic. Can you get into can you kind of tell us a little bit of like kind of what that chapter is about just so people know? And because I think the way that you analyze this kind of cultural icon of this Wienermobile, it was really fascinating and I thought was just kind of a great way to tie up the book.
1: Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, that was like a beautiful surprise towards the end of, uh, working on my first draft. It was, the book was generally around this road trip and this happened like two or three months after the road trip had ended. And I met these two incredible Wienermobile drivers and they were so kind. And I, spoke with them about just like the intense vetting process. It's so hard to get a job on the Wienermobile because there's only 12 jobs in the country. And so it's very, you know, intense and you're it's kind of culty and weird. <laughs> and then, you know, if you get the job and you join the cult, then you drive around the country with basically someone who is the only person you see every single day for six months, twice. And it's just, it feels like a bizarre social experiment for people. <laughs> yeah.
0: It seems like this is like a fake Netflix show that they're, totally. like they're casting.
1: <laughs> like, it's like a bad dating show. And that, yeah. and the more I talked to, I mean, the, the two drivers I, I spoke with, they were definitely not in love. There was a lot of like <laughs> sibling-like affection and conflict, but like they were not in love. But statistically, it's either like you hate this person's guts or you marry them. Uh, <laughs> and like, I was surprised at how little pushback I found in that characterization. I talked to other wiener drivers and they're like, yeah, that's pretty much, that's, that's it. It's pretty much the situation. <laughs> it's like either, you know, even people who are driving it, you know, 10, 15 years ago will either be like, oh, I never talked to that person again. Or like, yeah, they're like picking up our fourth grader <laughs> from school. And I mean I, I loved that. I was always really excited to find stories in the hot dog world that were sweet and kind and and weird because there was so much that I was expecting to find and, and then did find more than I imagined that was difficult. And I mean, it's talking about like the meat processing process and and history and talking about meat processing plants during COVID and just all of these difficult topics. And so finding the Wienermobile and just kind of the purity and the weirdness, and then also just how young people are navigating the country in this gigantic hot dog and, (laughs) you know, having a moment with the woman in this uh, man and woman pairing driving the Wienermobile and talking to her about being sexually harassed as a Wienermobile driver, which is absurd. But then (laughs) when you hear it, you're like, of course that happens. And that's fucking ridiculous. And all of the things they try to do that feel regressive that uh, they're like, well, we can't let two women drive alone It like in this region of the country, they'll get killed. And you're like, oh, they have to talk about that at the Wienermobile factory. Or like it's I think like what I was finding a lot with this book is just how much the like pervasive issues that you face from day to day are present in even the most weird and granular stuff. Like even the Wienermobile can't escape. And that was, yeah, that was like a a cool surprise to get to talk about stuff like that. And then also just talk about driving hot dogs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think like you had so many opportunities in your book to kind of expand on like larger cultural issues through the lens of hot dogs. And it sounds absurd to say that, but I mean like the, the, some of the, some of my favorite parts of the book is you're talking about kind of like the history of labor surrounding hot dogs and the, the worker's just the dire working conditions in meatpacking industry. And um, mm. I think that's kind of a thing that a lot of people know. But I, in the book, you allude to the fact that you were obsessed with a uh, how hot dogs are made video and that you've watched it a whole bunch, right? And like, so, you, so you know this for like years and years. Like you were, you had the insight to know that this is bad. Like this is, this is real bad.
1: I knew it was bad. Uh, But that video, I just, like, I've, I still am obsessed with that video because it does, I think, the best you could possibly do at making the process of hot dog production look appetizing and it looks disgusting. But they're doing everything they can. They're, like... They have the cheerful voiceover. they have like the fun music. they have the good lighting. They have the like not showing you anything illegal, and it's still like the nastiest thing you just churning like meat changing colors and just throwing you know dust into vats of wet meat like it's gross, it's so gross. <laughs> And that is, I think, the best you could possibly do to make it look appetizing. So I knew just based off of how much I love that video that and and just, you know, like you're saying, like it's it's well known that meat processing factories are not just a difficult place to work, but where it's correctly speculated that there's a lot of illegal and unethical stuff going on. And I think that understandably, the focus tends to be on how animals are treated, which it absolutely should be. Their animals are treated horrifically in meat processing factories. And I think what I hadn't fully um, considered was the extent that it would affect the workers, especially during COVID. And so I think as, as I was writing those chapters, I had intentionally avoided learning about those processes as I was traveling, because I was repeatedly trying to get tours and access to factories and was not able to. And I also had to eat five hot dogs a day. And so, knowing how they were made and still having to eat five hot dogs a day for weeks uh, was just not sustainable <laughs> <laughs> for me. So, I, I knew I, I had always planned to save the that process for later in writing. But yeah, I mean, the time that I was covering in throughout 2021 and into early 2022 was one of the most tumultuous and, and horrible times in American meatpacking in over 100 years and yeah. um, getting to unpack why that was and um, just kind of hopefully drawing more attention to it because there was a lot of great reporting on that issue that I don't that I think got buried, maybe understandably, because it was
0: there was a Just lot like going on part of so many different stories and stuff. Well, Absolutely. and I, I saw recently in the news and, you know, this I think this happened well since your book has come out. But there was a, a meatpacking uh, industry death of like a 14 year old. I, I can't remember mm-hmm. what state, but they had legally they had recently legally passed like a child like labor law that like 14 year olds are now allowed to work certain hours or whatever. And then almost immediately, like within like a month of this law passing, there was a 14 year old that yeah lost his life. Uh, and it's just, it's devastating because these things, they're predictable in the ways that like labor just exploits. And the, like mm-hmm. some of the, like the most horrifying parts of the COVID, like looking back on it, especially now, like of the early parts of it where like, yeah, there was just so much news just bombarding us about, you know, death rates and all those types of things. But some of those meatpacking industries had like some of the highest per capita death rates in the country. And you kind of covered that a little bit. And there was, I think you talked about a town where like a good portion of like the deaths in that like local area were all just basically from a singular source. And it was from this meatpacking industry.
1: Yeah. And, and, um, While that was happening, I mean that there were, it was basically a secret that was protected by the state where the cities and the states were not allowed the level of access necessary to the meatpacking processing plants to even confirm those numbers. So the numbers they were getting were low and still some of the highest, like you're saying, per capita death rates, it was like the second most dangerous place to work in during COVID besides a hospital. And the reason that that was even happening at that rate to begin with bec- was because there was an executive order really early into lockdown saying that the meat processing factories have to stay open because Americans need their meat, and so it's tied into that jingoistic yeah. idea that directly leads to people dying, and and majority low income and and um, and immigrant are, are are dying at these factories, and like you're saying, children now i mean one thing I, di- I i did not know about that i am now very um fixated on because it is so absurd to me that it exists in this way are the agag laws that uh, bar press from uh, going into these factories and again like confirming what is actually going on and also limiting employees for being able to document what is happening in their own workplace. Like it makes it illegal to document workplace abuses in a way that completely stonewalls any meaningful investigation um, without getting extremely creative and preying on the financial vulnerability that many employees have on keeping the job. And so don't step out of line and don't say what is actually going on and don't ask for more. And ag-ag laws are slowly being walked back, but I just don't have enough confidence in, <laughs> uh, you know, because there's also been, unfortunately, kind of a reduction over the years in union power in uh, the meatpacking industry. And so it's really scary watching how persistent those issues are and how, you know, in, the, in over 100 years, there hasn't been, I guess, significant public interest in that issue, which is not even like a dig at the public. We got a lot of shit to focus on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, you know, it's particularly bad. So any time I get a chance to talk about it, I, I, it's um, not talked about enough.
0: With the book, um, there is kind of you have the micro history kind of to start the book of like the history of hot dogs and stuff. And talking about what we've been talking about with the labor issues and those types of things, it's kind of just become this like thing in my mind of like, for like the last decade, I've read 20, 30, you know, plus history books. And I I was a history major in college. And so it's just kind of always present in my mind that like whatever topic you choose, especially with microhistory, like there's going to be an absurdist part of it. And there's also going to be a horrifying component. And I think you definitely touch on the horrifying component so much. But you also get into some of like the absurdest elements of hot dogs. And you go to Nathan's hot dog eating competition, which is just I'll let you speak on that because it I mean, in my mind, it's just like it's the most like American thing that America does probably like we're just a a hot dog competition on the Fourth of July. Like this is we couldn't be more stereotypical in this moment.
1: It's so embarrassing and like (laughs) in the same way that I really wanted to be like at the end to be like and now after having seriously considered the (laughs) ramifications I will no longer eat meat and I am a good person now I was bad now I'm good I was dirty now I'm clean and like I just couldn't get there and I couldn't get I I love the hot dog contest it's horrible (laughs) I love it it make it and it makes me Still a little like reflexively like, look, I get that it sucks. Cause it does. Objectively, <laughs> it does. But as time goes on, I begin to feel more justified in my decision of loving the hot dog contest. But yeah, I mean, my first time going was not just one of my my the first crowd I had been in since lockdown. So just like a, you know, I'm already very prone to anxiety. And then just like that scale of intensity was. A lot. And then it's also you're witnessing history because Joey is eating 76 hot dogs in front of you. And you're like, it I it was the
0: peak it, of human experience right here. It was you know, amazing. Just- <laughs> I was like I
1: wanted to again, I just like wanted to be like, oh yeah, that's gross. And look at this. Like, because the way you hear that contest talked about, I think again is pretty like it's either like that's the coolest thing I've ever seen, or like that is a what a filthy display of consumeristic blah 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 and you're like yeah i guess but like <laughs> but he ate 76 hot dogs how are you not blown away by the sheer athleticism it takes you have to train your body to be able to do that i am obsessed with the hot dog contest i think about it all the time i <laughs> was so frustrated. I didn't go in 2022 because something always happens. Something chaotic always happens at those things. I will try my best in my life to never miss another one. Because in 2022, there was a protester who is correctly protesting meatpacking practices uh, that from Smithfield Foods. And Joey Chestnut, like put him in a headlock choked
0: him out basically right <laughs> i mean like yeah.
1: during the, it's a very alarming clip and before you watch it you should just know the protester lived and i guess was fine but it looks pretty bad uh <laughs> and it looks like he kind of kills a guy on stage <laughs> so that to, happened like,
0: the audience's amazement you know like it's i it's, yeah, watched the clip the audience, a few times just wild
1: the audience they just they are loving every second of this <laughs> physical assault they're wi- like witnessing. It's it's very, very weird. And then, yeah. And then I went this last year and it was like rained out and there was a lightning storm. And then Joey Chestnut stomped out. He's like, we need to eat hot dogs in the middle of a lightning storm for America. And I was like, oh, really? And so then everyone had to go back and watch it. Like, it's just the weirdest thing in the world. And inside of it, there's all of this drama and that has evolved where, uh, there is a lot of, I mean, and still is, uh, lesser than there used to be, but there is still a lot of institution. Like again, you can't escape it when you're in the Wienermobile, you can't escape institutional racism and, uh, misogyny when you're competing in a hot dog contest. It's ridiculous, but there are a number of stories, just contained in the history of this hot dog contest that's been popular for 20 years that say yeah. so much about American culture and also just the specific year that you're seeing it. I don't know. It, it feels like professional wrestling to me where it feels like this reflection of what are issues that are really affecting you know, what's really affecting this culture right now, because in professional wrestling and soap operas and hot dog eating contests, you're going to see it amplified in the loudest, most egregious possible way.
0: Have you read John Green's essay on the Nathan's hot dog eating competition?
1: I haven't, no.
0: Okay. Well, in his book, The Anthropocene Reviewed, it's just just a series of essays and he rates things on a five-star scale. Like, that's the whole premise of the book, and it's just random things. It's, Ooh, he does what did Diet think? Dr. Pepper. He does uh, the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Competition. He also does, like, Table of Contents and stuff. Like, it's just, like, so <laughs> random. Cool. Um, but, yeah, he wrote this, like, really beautiful essay on, the, like, I think the absurd nature of, I think, just the American identity that we have, like the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Competition, and it's such a – just such a phenomenon. So now that your your book has been out, yeah, I would definitely – recommend just checking out that essay, because I, I think it touches on a lot of the similar things that you you experienced and you've talked about with going to these competitions and learning now that you want to keep going back, which is a hilarious thing to uh, think about. And maybe like in a in 20 years, we'll have, you know, Raw Dog 2, and it'll just be a series of, you know, investigative journalism into the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating competition over the years. Oh, uh,
1: I hope so. I don't have the... <laughs> I don't have the courage to compete myself, but I really enjoy going. It's There's always going to be one point where you're like, I'm actively afraid for my life right now. I got to go to the after party this year. Like, I'm really <laughs> trying to, like, worm my way into this yeah. subculture. <laughs> I,
0: know, I know Joey Chestnut hangs out. I don't, I don't know exactly way, where he's from and all that stuff. But I know he hangs out in Indianapolis, like... Oh, yeah. Regularly. And he's like regularly sighted around here. So if I ever, you know, get a, you know, just meet him on the street and stuff, I'll, I'll let him know that you say hi and I'll get a Please. picture for you. But um, he's <laughs> so funny.
1: I'm sure he's so sick of me, but he's, he's <laughs> been very nice.
0: <laughs> Do you know if he's read your book? Do you have any idea if, if he's <laughs> uh, <laughs> like talked about it or anything?
1: I met him at the... Uh, after party <laughs> this year after the <laughs> hot dog. Edikata. So I, I finally met him two years after I'd first seen him and he has not read the book, but he was like, Oh, you're that like writer that pretends to be married to me, which is true. And <laughs> he was not wrong. And I was like, yes, that's me. And he's like, great. Let's take a picture. <laughs> Very sweet, polite, person who ate, you know, 60 something hot dogs and still uh, had the grace to say hello. So I'm a fan.
0: I do have to be honest. There was when I first picked up your book, I was like I was I had a hesitancy because in the very first couple pages of the book, you reveal you're doing this road trip and you're not going to eat every hot dog that you grab, like, you're only going to take a couple bites and stuff. And I was like, Mm -hmm. what are we doing here? Or like, we're not consuming all the hot dogs. (laughs) And then I just had like, literally a flip of the switch. And I was like, Oh, no, that's like, that's absolutely the right approach. Like, (laughs) I'm sure there was maybe like a little bit of mental gymnastics with deciding not to eat the entire hot dog every single time and like I'm just curious if that was just like a purely digestive thing for you is you're just like I just can't there's no way I can I can eat you know five full hot dogs every single day for the next two and a half months or whatever
1: yeah it was untenable I mean not that (laughs) like no like there are certainly people who could have done it but that was I think that that was like as like Traditionally, food writery as I got because originally that was not the plan. But then after day one, where I was like, "I will die if this is <laughs> how this whole trip goes," I have to come up with a system. And I was feeling really guilty about it. And I'm like, "Uh, I've I have failed." And it's day two of hot dogs. And but I was talking with my boyfriend who I was traveling with, and he was like, "Well, you know, like a sommelier doesn't drink a bottle the entire bottle of wine. You just gotta get." The feel of it, and like that was, I feel like as like fancy food writery as I got, where I'm like, you don't have to, you know, eat the whole dog to understand what you're doing. But it's very tempting, and often I would, but I just worried, you know, if I eat this whole hot dog right now, am I cheating the next hot dog? At like, f- if I'm like <coughs> full and distracted. Or like, I don't know, I kept trying to be like hot dog sommelier. You don't want to show up to your next tasting blackout drunk because the last wine tasted good. So I don't know if there's anything to that because I still am like, (laughs) I am not a legitimate food writer. But that was what I told myself was, you know, and and also just, yeah, logistically, I wouldn't have made it. And uh, we had to be in a car together. And I don't think that... Anyone would have appreciated the number of stops. And, you know, it's that's why it's like wild that I don't know. I still, they're like, oh, it's a lot of talk about poop. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I <laughs> <laughs> look at the assignment.
0: <laughs> there are several just like tendrils of this book that could have been pulled in so many different directions. There's, or you even can call them a little bit of like subplots, and you have your relationship that we can kind of spoil, Uh, didn't go so well over the course of the road trip. And you also, you have several allusions in your book to um, like thinking about and living with an eating disorder and which like, I think it's some, like I really do, like in a beautiful sense, doesn't become like the driving force of this narrative. Like it is told honestly and, and authentically, but then doesn't become the main focus of the narrative. What was... I think like approaching those kind of topics where, you know, it didn't become simply just a relationship kind of essay or a book, or it didn't come, you know, strictly just on eating disorders, but you, you have so many little different areas of the book that you could have gone off in a whole other book, or there could have just been so many different versions of this book. And like, how by the end of it, did you decide how to put this book into the world, I guess?
1: Oh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I guess that, I mean, a lot of that I fully owe to my editor because that was something that I, especially, yeah, like including the personal elements was something that I went back and forth about throughout the course of writing the book. Because originally, you know, I was thinking of it as a travel book with history elements, but then, you know, I was not anticipating that relationship ending. Um And because it was focused on this road trip, it felt, you know, like as I was writing the first draft, it's like, well, how do you get around this and have it still feel focused and honest? And I was having a really hard time with it. And my first, I did two versions of the first draft, both of which sucked, where like one version of the first draft was like overly confessional and way too skewing me. There was more stuff about eating disorder stuff, all of which was true, but ultimately it's like, I wanted it to be honest, but not skew into, I don't know. I mean, like coming out of podcasting and then stand up. like I'm so used to releasing things in a pretty immediate way. And so writing a book was challenging in this really cool way where it was like, well, no, you have like a year to write this. And so how are you going to feel about committing this to the record in a year? And with most of it, it was pretty different, you know, cause you feel very different a year out from a breakup than as it's happening basically. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I wrote one version that was far too confessional. And then I tried a different version of it where I'm like, well, I wonder if there's a way I can write this uh, about this trip without mentioning this at all. And that, also felt very weird <laughs> and it felt like yeah. it felt like erasing someone in a way that like wouldn't have been fair and because you know he was he was a big part of it and even though it didn't work out it felt dishonest to not honor that so i felt very lucky i had an editor who i didn't just like trust her opinion on writing but i also just liked her and i you know <laughs> felt comfortable trying to get This sort of balance as close to right as I could. And I think, I mean, already it's like, oh, I could have said a little more or a little less. I was interested in how that part would be received by people. And it's been mixed. I think some people are like, who cares about her breakup? And other people are like, I don't understand what went wrong in that relationship. Why didn't (laughs) she say And you know, I don't know. It's like impossible to get it exactly right. But I feel I feel pretty good about where we landed on it. And it was very, very. I leaned heavily on on her and on uh, my close friends who who read the book early on of getting that, if not totally right, at least in a place that felt honest without oversharing.
0: You said earlier in the interview that you you do check Goodreads. Uh, so yeah. I am just, whether it's Twitter or Goodreads or, you know, someone's sending you a, a physical fan letter or whatever it is, you take some shots at some cities' hot dogs. And mm-hmm. if there's anything that just drives haters wild, it's critiquing something based on the city someone lives in. And you're not so yeah. hot on certain cities. So if you could... Give me some of those cities that, like, were... They're not serving up great hot dogs. And and if you can, let me know if you received any hate directed at you because of your take on on a specific city.
1: I feel, and maybe I'm, like, being overly generous to myself, I do feel that a good half of my one-star reviews on Goodreads are people from Chicago who can't forgive me. <laughs> for what I said about their hot dogs.
0: I, I was kind of like assuming this would be like exactly where we we're going.
1: Yeah. I mean that <laughs> Chicago specifically, cause they're I think the, the most cities like, I don't know. I mean, it gets because hot, the hot dog is a part of their cultural identity. Mm. Um, so it's a shame that they're not better, but uh, it's, but like, I think that, yeah, I I knew I was gonna catch shit for that, and it also reminded me of just like I don't know, like touring around doing stand up. If you say anything specifically complimentary about a city at the beginning of your set, even if you're lying, everyone would be like, "We loved her." She, I didn't <laughs> I didn't listen after she said that she liked hot dog, um, or if you say something like rude about the city. If you're in a city that can't take a joke, <laughs> you can't no. Because it's kind of, I mean, I love, I'm from the Boston area and I love doing shows in Boston because they just like get off on you telling them they're horrible. And (laughs) so that's fun. But it's like, yeah, there are certain cities where it's like, if you come in hot in a way that's critical of a city, (laughs) you're never going to win them back.
0: Well, I think hot dogs in Chicago, that's a real particular one. I mean, you, you attack their hot dogs... You know, maybe the Cubs, they might let it slide. They got two baseball teams. But if you attack their flag, it's all over. You know, like, just yeah. the two things you probably can't touch is the hot dog and the flag. So Lovely um, flag. Love the flag. <laughs> it is a great flag. Yeah, I gotta and give there, that one to them. There
1: are a lot of good hot dogs in Chicago. And I mean, I've been back to Chicago four or five times since I did the research trip. And like, I've had hot dogs I like far better. If I had had more time to write the book, I would have included the ones that I like. But I kind of stand by what I said for the most part. And it was fun because I went to Chicago twice to promote the book. Uh, Or actually three times. I went in like February, May, and June. And the reading I did was like the loveliest space it was, like, Haymarket Books. It was, like, all communists. It's such a
0: great bookstore.
1: It's the best. I was, like, and uh, it was, like, with Women and Children First, it was, like, these are my people. And uh, I was booed when I came on stage <laughs> uh, because of what I had said. And it yeah. was, like, well, at least I know they actually read it. You They're can't win high. them all.
0: You know, that's just not part of it. <laughs> um, my final question is, just any books that you've been loving, whether it was part of the research or just books that you've been reading recently—fiction conf- or nonfiction. What are some books that Jamie loves?
1: I am in the middle of a book that it'll it'll come out in November. A uh, comedy book by Jesse David Fox. Uh, I've I've followed his writing forever, but it's sort of about the most recent comedy boom and what led up to it and where it could possibly go. I'm in the middle right now. And I'm really, really enjoying it, which is saying a lot because I feel like, I don't know, you don't want to (laughs) read about like what you do all the time, but Jesse is like (laughs) such a talented writer and also very funny himself. So I've really been enjoying that. I haven't started it yet. I'm waiting. I think it gets in here in the mail today, but I'm really excited for Maria Bamford's book. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sure, I'll Join Your Cult, I think it's called. great Uh, title. So good. so I am going to declare myself a fan of that book even though I haven't read it yet. Yeah, but that's fair. She, she's never missed for me. <laughs> um and yeah, that's what I've been that's what I've been reading lately. What is what's something that you've been enjoying recently? I always I'm, oh, I'm bad at keeping
0: up. I've been on a climate change binge recently. So I just finished uh The Heat Will Kill You First, which is just a absolutely horrifying look at heat and climate change. And uh, I'm also trying to tone it down a little bit. And so I'm reading this uh, book called, uh, it's just called Video Games. And it's about the best game of the year from 1976 through current. And it's written by people in the industry and it's like illustrated and stuff. So that's not likely me. I don't even play video games, but I just saw a really cool illustrated book and I was like, you know what? I should check that out. So that's I'm having cool. fun with that, especially like in a topic that I just, I don't know a whole lot about. So it's been good.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, thank rocks.
0: you, Jamie, so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, where can people find you online?
1: Uh, you can find me on uh, Instagram at Jamie Chris Superstar. That's where I'm the most. I'm still technically on Twitter, but... Um, you know, who knows, who knows what's going to happen over there.
0: It's a weird place. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, for coming on. Everyone, you should check out Raw Dog by Jamie Loftus. It's such a fun read and you will absolutely love it. Uh, Help keep this podcast going and ad free by supporting and becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash schizo reads. This podcast is edited by Tone Support. Find out more information at tone.support. And if you want to check out any of the books from this podcast, check out the show notes where you can find links to all of the books. Thanks so much.